Hello and welcome to this new stream of programming for the Hamlet podcast, our attempt at something like a virtual book club. I must confess it struck me today that I would have to choose how to phrase all of this, since unfortunately it's not really going to be a conversation. I haven't quite been able to decide whether I should assume that you have read the play, or if perhaps this is more of an introduction, an invitation for you to go and read it between now and the next instalment. Ideally, it'll fall somewhere between the two, so that you'll enjoy it whether or not you've done any homework in advance. I was asked online why I picked this play, Richard II, as a starting point, and to be honest, I don't have much of an answer. It has been somewhat on my mind since January, when I saw the live broadcast of the play from the Almeida starring Simon Russell Beale. And I suppose it had been on my mind too, because of the other strand of new podcast episodes all about verse – And the programmer in me thought that, since we've been discussing verse alone on the basics so far, it'd be no harm to tackle a play that is completely in verse. Richard II seems also to be a good place to start, since it begins the sequence of plays and stories that goes from Richard all the way as far as the end of Richard III, covering almost 90 years of English history. Shakespeare had of course delved deeper into the history of Britain as far back as King John and indeed King Lear, but Richard II felt like a great place to start. Of course, this being the Hamlet podcast, I am eager to draw any parallels that might be worth our attention. This play starts with a royal man whose uncle might himself have an eye on the throne. In this instance, the nephew is King Richard II, who has been on the throne since he was ten years old. His uncle is John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster. The play is full of dukes, There's Lancaster, York, O'Merrill, Norfolk, and it starts with a loud argument about who is responsible for the death of another, the Duke of Gloucester, who also happened to be Richard's uncle. Gloucester was the leader of the Lords Appellant, a group of senior councillors who had attempted to govern England while the king himself was too young for the job. Bear in mind, he was a ten-year-old, he wasn't necessarily going to make the finest decisions in terms of ruling the country. As the king reached adulthood, it became clear that perhaps they didn't want to give up power, and matters reached ahead when they rebelled against the king, letting him stay on in a nominal capacity. When John of Gaunt returned from Spain, he helped Richard to rebuild his power, and in 1397 he managed to overthrow the Lord's Appellant. The Duke of Gloucester was imprisoned in Calais, and before he could be tried, he was murdered. The rumour persists that this was at Richard's behest, And it is in the aftermath of this that the Shakespeare play begins. Two younger lords are in a very heated argument over who might be responsible for the Duke's death, among many other things. If you have it in mind that it was perhaps Richard who engineered the murder, the stakes seem higher. The two men are both trying to score points against the other while Richard presides over the two. These two men are Thomas Mowbray, the Duke of Norfolk, and Henry Bolingbroke, the Duke of Hereford. He also happens to be John of Gaunt's son. Now, their real-life argument over treason and loyalty to Richard led, as in the play, to a tournament, and in real life Richard did indeed call it off and banish both of them. Confused yet? Don't worry, but do keep an eye on Bolingbroke, because he's the major antagonist of the play. Like I said, Richard banishes both men, Mowbray is sent away for life, and he will eventually die in Italy, and Bolingbroke is banished for ten years. This very quickly becomes six years, when Richard sees the look on John of Gaunt's face and decides that his cousin, Henry, can be banished for a shorter time. 
It's kind of fascinating that the play begins with a heated argument between Mowbray and Bolingbroke, even though the real dynamic is between Bolingbroke and Richard. Richard must fall because Bolingbroke is going to rise up and become King Henry IV. An essential point to bear in mind is that all of Shakespeare's history plays, with of course the exception of Henry VIII, were written in the final years of the reign of Elizabeth I. She had no heir, and the constant discussion of who might succeed her got so heated and so annoying to her that she threatened death to anyone who mentioned the subject. As a result, the theatres happened upon the simple but very clever idea of dramatising episodes and stories from English history that might have something to say about contemporary politics. Now, there's nothing new in that. Greek tragedies, likewise, used myths and the heroic past to comment on current affairs. But, say, while the pageantry and swashbuckling events of Henry VI were crowd-pleasers and the Shakespearean equivalent of action movies... Richard II was a much more dangerous subject matter. In the fourth act of this play, Richard hands over the crown. He abdicates in favour of a more politically capable successor. Richard has no children, and Bolingbroke is a legitimate choice as king. He is Richard's cousin, and likewise a grandchild of Edward II. With all of this in mind, it starts to become very clear that the play would be very interesting and contentious for an Elizabethan audience. So much so that it seems the deposition scene was not published in any of the quartos that we have from Elizabeth's lifetime. It only appears in print after her death. It's worth stating that the play is good enough that it doesn't need the shadow of Elizabeth's succession hanging over it, but it certainly makes things more curious to us. Shakespeare doesn't stage anything that might destabilise Elizabeth, but the play was actually used as part of a plot against her. The night before the Essex Rebellion in 1601, the conspirators paid Shakespeare's company to put on the play. Elizabeth herself had famously quipped, I am Richard II, know ye not that? She could see all too clearly the danger of staging the life and death of a monarch who might hand over the crown. Rather grimly, Shakespeare's company were hired to perform the play for Her Majesty the night before Essex was executed a few months later for his failed attack on the monarchy. A great many years earlier, Elizabeth had remarked at Tilbury, We princes, I tell you, are set on stages in the sight and view of all the world duly observed. The eyes of many behold our actions. A spot is soon spied in our garments a blemish noted quickly in our doings. This idea of the monarch as a performer set on a stage predates all of Shakespeare's plays, but the idea certainly prevails in Richard II. Richard himself is definitely the star of his own show, both in his own mind and in the play. He speaks at length, he fantasises and observes the world, but isn't enormously troubled with the nitty-gritty of kingship. His fatal error is turning Bolingbroke against him. While banishment could perhaps have been forgiven, the fact that Richard seizes all of John of Gaunt's property when he dies is a step too far. The older members of Shakespeare's audience might still have remembered when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries and subsumed their enormous wealth for himself. A king helping himself to things that weren't necessarily his was nothing new, but it wasn't a popular move either. Bolingbroke, although exiled, was still alive and deserved to inherit from his father, John of Gaunt. So Richard intervening like this makes us, perhaps, start to side with Bolingbroke. 
Admittedly, Richard is doing this to finance the wars in Ireland, another problem that continued to rage during the final years of Elizabeth's reign. And to a London audience, perhaps this was a popular move. I don't need to tell you that the pesky Irish remained a thorn in the side of the English monarchs until they finally left us, or most of us, alone in the early 20th century. Richard continues to perform as if he's in a tragedy. He likens himself to Christ when he realises that he's on the way out and observes his world begin to crack. Even though everyone in the play speaks in verse, Richard's is the most complicated language. Shakespeare contrasts him with Bolingbroke, whose language is far more matter-of-fact and plain-dealing. Although, when Bolingbroke becomes King Henry towards the end of the play, rhyming couplets start to creep into his way of speaking and he himself becomes more poetic and contemplative. It's worth bearing in mind, of course, that he is the very character who will, later in the play that bears his name, Henry IV, Part Two, speak the much misquoted line, Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. The crown is hollow, according to Richard, and over the course of the plays, Shakespeare does give us a sense that there's always going to be a rise and then a fall in the life of any king. As I mentioned, the entire play is in verse, as are four of the other history plays. Every single character has their own way of speaking, from the Duchess of Gloucester to the gardener that the Queen overhears discussing politics. For the most part, this is an aristocratic play. We don't really get to hear anything from the ordinary people about how they feel about Richard or indeed about Henry. The various factions and nobles in the play all have their turn to speak, and there's such a balance of opinions and possibilities that it can be quite hard to decide how Shakespeare feels about the key players. The Duke of York is a powerful figure, but he's totally outwitted by his wife as she intercedes for their son, the Duke of O'Merle. Meanwhile, the Bishop of Carlisle has an amazing speech in which he defends Richard's right to the throne, and then Shakespeare undercuts it almost comically by having him arrested for treason in the very next line. Shakespeare manages to stage the dramas of these historical characters and give real emotional depth to Richard and to Bolingbroke without erring too far towards either side. He couldn't make Richard too much of a martyr because so doing would undermine the legitimacy of Henry. He couldn't glorify Henry's hostile takeover too much since that could be interpreted as an invitation to sedition against Elizabeth. He strikes so good a balance, I think, that you could make the play go either way if you wanted it to. We just can't quite tell what Shakespeare himself thinks, and maybe this is a mark of his genius. An important study of medieval politics called The King's Two Bodies by Ernst Kantorowicz discusses Richard at length. The idea is that the medieval king has two bodies, his own physical body, the body natural, and the body politic, which is the spiritual body that encompassed the position of quote-unquote king, one that is immortal and ongoing. The study always puts me in mind of Hamlet, talking about Polonius's corpse and Claudius's determination to find it when he's joking that the body is with the king, but the king is not with the body. The king is a thing of nothing. Shakespeare predates Cantorowicz, of course, but the idea remains. In Richard II, he stages the handover of power to Bolingbroke, but things get nasty when Richard is imprisoned in Pomfret. The plan might have been to have Richard starve to death in captivity there, but the enterprising young Exton decides to intuit a word from Bolingbroke to mean that he wants Richard dead, and so he murders him. 
Modern productions often give this grisly task to O'Merle, the son of the Duke of York, and another cousin of both Richard and Henry, because his loyalties seem to shift so much over the course of the play. This story began in the shadow of a murder in captivity, perhaps orchestrated by the king, and it ends in exactly the same circumstances. Again, we get this sense of the cycle continuing. One king rises, another falls. But interestingly, Bolingbroke isn't a baddie. Shakespeare has a very balanced in his treatment of both Richard and Henry. They both have strengths and they both have weaknesses, but Henry is also the father of the great hero Henry V, and so he can't be portrayed as all bad. Whether or not the real Henry arranged for Richard to be killed, Shakespeare has him very repentant at the end of the play. He speaks of how he's perhaps happy at the result, he is the king after all, but he vows to go to the Holy Land on a pilgrimage to atone for the death of the king. The murder of a king, even a king who has abdicated or been deposed, is a crime against the body politic. You could even make the case that the murder of Richard leads to the civil strife of the bloody wars between Lancaster and York that characterise the century that follows. It isn't until Richard III is deposed by Henry VII, who was the first of the Tudors, that any kind of lasting peace is achieved. In the main podcast, we have discussed a good bit how Hamlet is a play about the move from the Middle Ages into the Renaissance, and Richard II is even more obviously a play about this kind of a shift. In Hamlet, the contrast is between the two brothers. The anointed, fondly remembered King Hamlet, who definitely feels like a divinely ordained, chivalrous, old-fashioned king, and Claudius, the upwardly mobile, dare we say, Machiavellian man, who's prepared to murder his brother for power. Machiavelli's The Prince was first translated into English in the 1580s, right about the time that Shakespeare was starting to write for the theatre. Bolingbroke can certainly be read as a Machiavellian prince in the making. Many of his actions throughout the play resonate with the kinds of guidelines proposed in the Italian's book. By contrast, Richard is very much a king from an older world. He is not a man of the people and goes from king by divine right, to Jesus-like martyr in his own mind, while the play tries to catch up with him. The real-life Richard definitely thought that he was a king by divine sanction. There's a fascinating artefact that gives us an insight into how he thought about himself. It's called a Wilton diptych, and you can still see it at the National Gallery in London. If and when they reopen, of course. It's an altarpiece in two parts, and on one side you see Richard attended by John the Baptist, Edward the Confessor, and Edmund the Martyr, and on the other is the Virgin Mary with the baby Jesus in her arms, surrounded by eleven angels. It's as if Christ is anointing Richard, reaching out towards him, and their eyes seem to connect across the two panels of the diptych. It's no wonder that Richard had no doubt about his own divine right if he was surrounded by beautiful gold-plated objects like this that reminded him of it at all times. The play is known mostly as the tragedy of Richard II, and few characters in Shakespeare fall quite as far as he does. In his final scene, he's left miserable and alone, presumably in a dank corner of Pomfret Castle. Who among us hasn't felt something of this sentiment in the loneliness and isolation of the past few months, when he says, I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world, and for because the world is populous, and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it. Yet I'll hammer it out. 
Richard has quite a long and beautiful soliloquy here as he contemplates his life and his lot and has a particularly beautiful concept of time. I wasted time, and now doth time waste me. For now hath time made me his numbering clock. My thoughts are minutes, and with my sighs they jar their watches on unto mine eyes. The outward watch, whereto my finger like a dial's point, is pointing still, in cleansing them from tears. He doesn't go quietly into the night, mind you. Some productions might have Exton or O'Merle, as I mentioned, creep up on him, but in the Shakespeare text, Richard puts up quite a fight and kills at least two attackers before he is overcome. As his wife put it earlier in the play, the lion dying thrusteth forth his paw and wounds the earth, if nothing else, with rage to be o'erpowered. Richard isn't just a soft martyr, he's flesh and blood. Very early on, he tells us he was not born to sue, but to command. He gives the orders, and doesn't like to have to ask for anything. His last words in the entire play, and of his life, are orders too. He curses Exton's hand, and points out that he has, with the king's blood, stained the king's own land. His final words are a command to his own spirit. Mount, mount, my soul, thy seat is up on high, whilst my grossed flesh sinks downward here to die. Curiously enough, Richard II has never been made into a feature film. It has a pretty solid performance history, and actors from John Gielgud, Jeremy Irons, Derek Jacobi, Michael Pennington, Mark Rylance, David Tennant and even Fiona Shaw have all given memorable interpretations of the character. More recently, there have been excellent performances at the Globe and the Almeida in London, and of course, the BBC's landmark adaptation of the history plays, The Hollow Crown, began with Ben Whishaw and Rory Kinnear in the two main roles. Closer to home, Richard II also started the sequence of plays of Druid Shakespeare, led with a remarkable performance by Marty Ray. You can find footage of just about all of these on YouTube if you look carefully enough, and in the current climate of generous enthusiasm, it's possible that some of them might even be released in full to a wider, isolated public. If so, I'll share anything I find online. I'll confess I didn't know Richard II very well before I picked it for this week, and perhaps that is the reason I picked it. My first introduction to it was years ago, in a book by the actor and director Stephen Burkhoff called Richard II in New York. In it, Burkhoff describes the process of staging the play and some of the inventive approaches he took to it. I remember being very much inspired by his ideas, so if you're looking for something to read instead of watch, I can thoroughly recommend that you hunt that book down. Next time for this book club, I think we should go for a comedy, and so I've selected The Two Gentlemen of Verona for our next selection. I'll be back on Thursday with The Basics, and of course there's a new episode of the regular podcast every Sunday. The website has had a bit of a makeover with new pages for each of the new kinds of episode that I'm putting out. You'll be able to find links to the full text of the play we're reading each week on the book club page. Very easy to find on thehamletpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>